Well, I apologize this morning. You may get tired of my voice, but I have the honorable position and honorable opportunity to get to share the word with you this morning. I so appreciate that Pastor Scott is willing to do that and, and to share the pulpit uh, with the elders and allow us the opportunity to come up here and just, and just share the word of God with you. And so as we begin this morning, uh, one of the things that, that Pastor Scott does for us, and I really appreciate particularly from a, a worship side, is as we look at these uh, series that we go through, Pastor Scott kind of gives us uh, the different uh, passages that we're going to be reading, and then he kind of puts themes outside each passage so we kind of know where we're headed with that. And, and so last week in, uh, in chapter 3, we saw Jeremiah come to this place where we, we get this little bit of a breath of fresh air in the midst of the lamenting and the darkness of sorrow over the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and, and there's this, this moment of, of, but God is good. Yes, it is, it is horrendous what has happened, but, but God is good and God is faithful. And so, so last week, that chapter 3, Pastor Scott had that labeled real hope. And as we come into chapter 4 today, the title was False Hope. And so as we begin today to think about hope, I want to take just a minute, turn to your neighbor, and tell them, how do you define hope? What's your definition of hope? Just talk to your neighbor for 15 seconds. How do you define hope? All right, give me five more seconds. How do you define hope? All right, good. Since it's always scary to share your own ideas, tell on your neighbor how did they define hope. Somebody, somebody share with you. How, what was their definition of hope? What was the? Nobody wants to share? Prayer. Prayer, okay. All right, what else? Expectation. Expectation, good. Anybody else? Definition of hope. Definition of hope. Prayer, expectation. Something you cannot see, but you're going to get anyways. You, you anticipate it's coming. Good. Good. Yeah, so if we go to good old Webster, here's what he has to say. A feeling of expectation and a desire for certain things to happen. Or a feeling of trust. So as we think about hope this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take a minute. I want us to think about where does our hope rely? Where does our hope reside? And what I want us to do is, is we think about this expectation, this coming. I want us to, to kind of take a journey through time, and we're going to start here in Lamentations and see where was their hope. And I think there's kind of three areas that we see a false hope out of the people in this passage. And then we're going to journey forward a little bit further in time and arrive here with us today. And what are the things, and, and something to ponder as we study today, where does our hope lie? In what do we trust? Where and from what are we have these expectation of things to come? So as we begin, let's first start here in chapter 4 as Jeremiah writes. And there's three, like I said, three places that I think we see it. Verses 11 and 12 give us that first spot. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Early in chapter 4, he's been, been, been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. At one point he talks about the gold of the temple and it's no longer once it was shiny and now it is dull. 
It's lost its luster. It's lost its, its value. The, the, the stones that were stacked are spread in this total destruction down to the foundations of Zion. And then we get here to verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And we see this first place of false hope for the people. They've turned their attention and their hope to the city, to the walls that stand between them and the enemy, to the gates that allows only certain ones to come in, to the buildings that stand. And they put their hope in this temporal thing. And here's why. Because Jerusalem all along, you even see it there in verse 12, the kings and the people of the world felt that Jerusalem was untouchable. Those who had come against it had never breached the walls and never made it in. And so they, they, they just said, well, God will always protect Jerusalem. It's his city. They forgot it's not the city he's protecting, but the people. And a, a prime example of this is Sennacherib. You can find it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. They've been conquering across the land, and they come to Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, I'm coming for you. And they don't know what to do, and so they go to, to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, he will leave. And above that, he will die in his own country. And as they sit there, and, and, and Sennacherib is, is brought in and is, it is laying siege to the city and trying to get through the walls, one night the angel of the Lord comes and slaughters 185,000 of his men. And the next morning when he arises to see the carnage, he says, I'm out. That's enough. And he leaves, and Scripture tells us that a little while later, his own sons put him to the sword in his own country. The prophecy coming true, but this, this idea that God will always protect. The people never even opened the gates. We didn't have to do a thing. God just came and fought for us. He'll always protect this city. And they put their hope in something of this world. They forgot. God is not necessarily concerned with the city, but with the hearts of his people who reside in the city. And the next place we see it is in uh, verses 13 through 16. And even here, Jeremiah is literally repenting and putting before the Lord the sins of the people. He says, starting in verse 13, this, the destruction, was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. These religious leaders who had enjoyed a place of prominence, who were seen as holier than thou and had a welcome invitation to every party at home in town, have fallen from that place of respect. And now covered by the blood of those they once led, have gone from being clean and, and, and the ones doing the ceremonies to unclean. To having the cries of the leper go before them, away from us, unclean. Do not touch them. You can't even touch their garments. And to become fugitives in the land. But the people had put their hope 
in the priests, in the prophets. And as we hear, as we study this, knowing that the priests and the prophets, as they begin to twist the word of God and begin to, to twist the laws that God had put into place, the people blindly followed. And they shed the blood of those who stood for righteousness because it went against what they were saying. And the people, instead of crying out, why would you do that? Cheered on. And that which was sin became acceptable. As they put their hope in the one speaking instead of the one giving. In a false hope in those religious leaders of the earth. And then the final piece in verse 17, we see that they have a false hope. It says, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Many scholars believe that this is a reference to, to the nation, to Egypt. As they had hope that Egypt would come and save them. And as a matter of fact, in the beginning of the siege, Egypt did actually attack. And, 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 and uh, Nebuchadnezzar took his soldiers, and went away to battle Egypt. And Zedekiah came to Jeremiah and said, please pray for Jerusalem. And he said, the Egyptians will go home and they will return. The Babylonians will return. And that's exactly what happened. This nation, these people of Jerusalem, looking to a nation that they had once been delivered from to deliver them, and putting their hope there instead of in the one who rules. Instead of in the one who delivered them from that place. And these three false hopes that we see them holding on to until the point that the gates were broken, the walls were breached, and the Babylonian soldiers were coming in and killing those running through the streets and bringing destruction to not only the city, but this people. No wonder we have the book of Lamentations. This false hope. Where does our hope lie today? Join with me as we travel through time about 500 years and we join the city of Bethlehem one evening. As a baby's cry comes out of a manger, an angel sing in the heavenlies above the fields. O come, O come, Emmanuel, crying out for Christmas this Christmas night. Here hope had arrived. But because of the false hopes of the people, they missed it. They missed it. Because you see, for the people of that time, the Messiah that they were seeking, Jesus didn't fit that mold. Their hope was that an earthly king who would come as the Lord's anointed leader to liberate them, who would be a military leader, who would rise up an army, liberate them from Roman rule, and restore the days of King David. And the kingdom would come back. And Jesus didn't fit that mold. He didn't fit that mold at all for them. Never did they think that a humble servant king who was not seeking earthly power would be the Messiah. Never did they think the kingdom he would establish would not be here on earth, but in eternity. 
Never did they think the freedom he would bring was beyond the rule of an earthly king and that to eternal freedom from sin and death. And he didn't fit the mold of their false hope. That they had been told this is what he will look like and this is what the Messiah will be. And as he had done some great things and was riding into that triumphant entry, they cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This could be him. But just a week later, when he allowed himself to be arrested and put on trial, that's not a king. That's not what we're looking for in a Messiah. And their cries of Hosanna turned to crucify. He didn't fit the mold of their false and those religious leaders who he came against and called out on their sin whispered in their ears, crucify, crucify. And they joined in with the song. And this God who once destroyed the city instead destroyed his son on a cross for us that true hope could be realized, that true freedom could be understood that the Messiah could fulfill his plan. The people missed it because they had a false hope and an idea of what the Messiah should look like. Where does our hope lie today? And that's what I want us to ponder for just a moment. Where does our hope lie today? For some people, it lies in social media and in Facebook, right? How many likes I get, how many posts I can get, how many followers I have, that's how I know if I'm liked and if I'm making it and if I'm doing good in the world. Right, if I can wake up in the morning, and fix my, well, I don't fix my hair, but fix my hair, I don't have hair to fix, but fix my hair. Take that first morning picture, and it's beautiful. And everybody says, look at how well they live their life. That'll be successful. That's my hope. If I could just have enough people, they recognize me as I go down the street for my social media. They know who I am. Others may put their hope in finances and in success. If I can just get that promotion, if I can just live in that neighborhood, if I can just drive that car or just make that amount of money, then people are going to respect me. Then I'm going to know that I made it. My hope of fulfillment is in those things. In the world that we've been living in, in the world of COVID and, 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 and disease and health and this idea of the last few years, Yes, we trust the doctors and the medicine that is there, but long before we arrive, we have been praying for those doctors. And we understand and we know that our hope does not lie in a machine, but in the one who can heal through that machine. Our hope does not lie in a medication, but the one who gave the wisdom and the knowledge and the ability for it to even be developed. Where does our hope Lie. Where does our hope lie today? For some, perhaps it's in the works that they do. I show up to church on Sundays. I serve the homeless. I help people. I'm nice. 
I think I've done enough good things. I'm way better than that guy. So I think I've done enough good things that God will let me in. I think I've done enough. I think I've, I've helped enough, and I've been nice enough, and I, I think I've, I've met the needs. For some, it's the faith of others. You know, I, I, my, my spouse wants me to be there every week, so I'm in church every week with them. And when they ask me to pray with them, I join in. I, I bow my head and sometimes even talk. I don't know if he hears me or not, but I do my part. I can slide in on their coattails of faith. I'll make it. It'll be okay. And they ride and they put their hope in the faith of another. A place that I see in a place that in the school where I work, we work hard to fight against is, is in that of, of, of a child who's grown up in the church, been there every Sunday because their parents brought them, heard their Sunday school teachers teach them about faith, heard about Jesus, went to youth group because their parents told them to be there, maybe even joined the worship team because they were good at music and their mom was on it too. And as they leave their home and they, they come into the world and they, they get that professor who's pushing his postmodern worldview it says, faith is your own parent's crutch. Get off of it and stand on your own two feet. And I've got these three questions that I ask everyone to try to destroy their faith, and you need to see if it'll be destroying yours too. And they say, where do I stand? Because my parents aren't here to take me back to church. So many times we encourage the students, ask the hard questions because you have people in your life right now who will help you to walk through them, that you can own that faith and know where your hope and your trust lies. So that when the world pushes back, you can stand. Where does our hope lie? The world is screaming at us today. Put your expectations in the things of this place. Put your hope in the things of this world. But you see, we have an amazing gift in our Savior and in the Word of God. Jeremiah, as he sat lamenting over the city of Jerusalem and its destruction, only had the prophecies and the things and the expectation of things to come to whereas we as New Testament believers, we have Genesis to Revelation. We have the prophecies and the fulfillment. We have the promises and God's faithfulness to build up our hope in Emmanuel, God with us. This is where our hope lies. This is real hope. This is true hope. In Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior King who has come and will come again, the one who has paid the price for our sin and has set us free, the one who has redeemed us that we might be right with God, the one who has gone before us to prepare a place for us in heaven, the one who stepped down from his throne to become like us so that we might be saved. And as Scripture tells us, we might have a great high priest who has been tempted as we have been tempted, who has been tried and who has suffered as we have suffered, who has experienced hunger and thirst and want and need and yet was without sin, but can empathize with his people and intercedes for us to the Father. This is our hope. This is our true hope. Jesus, the one who was 
who is and who is to come. And as we come into this time of the, of the church calendar, as we prepare for Christmas, the Advent season. Advent is something that has been celebrated throughout the history of the church. And the, and the word itself comes, means, uh, it means coming. And so this Advent season has been a time when people prepare their hearts to celebrate the first coming of Jesus. But also the other piece of Advent is to have hope and expectation of his second coming. When he will come again to establish his kingdom that has no end. And we have the glorious opportunity to hope in those things. To settle our hope in the Savior who we know was born that night. And to live in the hope of the King who will come again. And to be the ambassadors for that hope to the world today. To proclaim his name. And to point others to the hope in Christ. This Advent season is an amazing time of preparation. Our hope is in Christ. And in Christ alone. And in the grace of the cross, when we realize it may have ventured away from that and come to something here on this earth, the beauty of it is he is there with grace to say, come back. Come back. Let me hold you in that. Let me remind you of my faithfulness. Let me remind you of my strength and my goodness and the hope that can be found in me. A hope that brings peace that surpasses understanding. A hope that brings joy in the morning in the midst of sorrow. A hope that brings freedom from sin. A hope that goes beyond this earth. So as we close this morning, uh, I, just, I want to share with you guys something that I, uh, I often share at Trinity in our chapels. So Elisha, Caleb, sorry guys, you're going to see it again. But this is something that, uh, that I often share with the kids. It's also a great way to share the gospel with other people. And as I, as I was speaking through this message, I thought, I need a little something to huh, kind of lift us up. So uh, I just want to share this with you guys. And like I said, if you want to learn it, I'm happy to teach it to you. Uh, it's a good way to share the gospel. But as we think about this idea of hope, where our hope lies. I want to introduce you to my friend Bob. Not that Bob, but a different Bob. And Bob was a man who had lived a good life and was very successful in the eyes of the world. He had a nice house, a nice car, lots of money, a good family, was doing really well. And Bob thought, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where I am, but I know there's more. I've heard about this God fellow, and I'd like to, to see if he's really real. I'd like to talk to him and get to know him. And, and, and so as he began to try to start this journey to figure that out, he thought, you know, what I always see about those people who know God is that they're, they're really nice. They're always giving. They're always doing things. So, so if I get really nice to people, perhaps God will come see me. So, so Bob took his really nice house, and he just began to share his stuff. You needed a place to stay? Go see Bob. You need to borrow a car? Go see Bob. You need a little bit of money to help make the rent? Go see Bob. You want a pool to swim in? He's got one. Go see him. Need some food? He'll feed you. And Bob thought, after a couple of years, I've been so nice to people. God should just show up and say thank you, if nothing else, because I've helped a lot of people here. Why is he not coming? What's going on? Maybe this isn't enough. I've been nice. I've been really nice. Let me try something else. And so Bob went. Not only did he have a nice house, he had a really cool boat. 
So Bob let some people stay in his house. He jumped in his boat. And he began to sail around the world, stepping in all the places that he heard about these religions. And he asked him, tell me about God. I want to meet God. Show me God. And he meditated. And he heard about Allah. And he heard about Buddha. And he did all these things, but never could he find God. And he went all the way around the world in his boat, stopping in places, asking and seeking, but never could he find God. And he said, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm a man who can get things done. And every time that I hear people talk about God, they're always looking up. They're always saying he's in the heavens. He's above us. He's, he, it's, it's the heavenly places. And so Bob said, you know what? This is, this is silly. I've been waiting for him to come to me. I'm going to go see him. So Bob, being the man that he is, got into his rocket ship. He's that kind of guy. He took off into space, thinking, I'm going to go knock on God's front door. So I'm tired of this. And as he got into space and Earth was below, the moon to the right and the galaxies before him, he suddenly realized that this was not something he could do on his own. God was not someone he could just track down. So defeated, discouraged, and wondering, he came back to earth. And because he had loaned his car out, Bob was walking back home. And as he walked up to his house, he remembered that just down the road, there was a little church. And so he walked past his front door, and to the front door of that church, and he knocked. And someone came and welcomed him and took him in to the cross of Christ. And it was in that place that Bob met God. And his hope was realized. This is where it lies. Not in good works, not in other gods, in other religions, not in the power of us, but in the power of the cross. Where does our hope lie today? This Advent season, as we prepare for the first coming of our Christ in anticipation of the second, may our hope be renewed in Him. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for this time that we have had together. Thank You for who You are.